Mark chapter 3, you'll remember that we are actually studying the book of Mark, but it's been many weeks since we've been in the book of Mark because this whole Passion of the Christ film came out, you know, and we did some stuff with regards to that. We did a message called, Who Killed Jesus and What About the Jews? We did a message after the film concerning the questions, Did Jesus Really Have to Die? Why did it have to be such a bloody death? What does it all mean? Gerald delivered a message when I was out of town concerning as it was in the days of Noah, sort of a vibe on our culture right now and repenting and getting right with the Lord. And then last week we had our six-month anniversary and we talked about all that the Lord has taught us over the last six months. And now we're back in the book of Mark, chapter 3. And you may remember that when we left off, we were doing a study on the 12 disciples. We were going through each one and we were talking not so much just about their lives uh, biographically, but more importantly, their interaction with Jesus and what the Lord taught them, what their experience was with the Lord and what we can glean from that, what we can glean from their life, from their failures, from their excess, uh, uh, successes, from their experiences with Jesus. We talked about many of them and some of the others, quite frankly, uh, They apparently never did anything because the Bible doesn't say so. But they did do great stuff, I'm sure, but they're just not mentioned that much. So some of them we're just going to leave behind. We're not going to talk about them. And today we'll talk about our last disciple in this series. To refresh our memory, pick it up with me in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. It says, And Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This morning, we meet Judas. Father, as we come into your word, we just ask that you would work in our hearts. Your word tells us that you look upon the heart, that you know each one here. I am amazed that you look upon the heart and you love us still. That you love us with such an amazing, wonderful sacrificial, powerful, redeeming, glorious, bondage-breaking love. And now as we open up your word, we would open our hearts and invite you to examine them. See if there be any wayward thing or way in us and deal with it. Correct us if need be. Save us before we wander too far off the path, before we allow idols into our lives before we become puffed up or conceited or fall into the deceitfulness of riches, Lord, instruct us in our hearts. I ask for our congregation, for this family here, that you would cause us to be a people with soft hearts, hearts that readily respond to your word and your Holy Spirit working through it. If there be any callousness this morning in the hearts of this congregation, I just ask that you would pour out the ointment of healing upon those hard places in the heart. Make our hearts soft to receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Judas Iscariot. 
the most tragic failure in all of history, the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. Judas Iscariot, a heartbreaking example of lost opportunity, a one who heard all that Jesus had to say, saw all that he did, and betrayed him still. Judas Iscariot, the epitome of wasted privilege, one who was chosen by the Lord, appointed by the Lord, privileged by the Lord to interact with him on a daily basis for three years, and betrayed him still. Judas Iscariot, a classic illustration of what 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. That he would betray the Lord for monetary gain. As we've studied the other disciples, they proved to be to us an encouragement. Because in the lives of the other disciples, we saw that they were common people. But that God took the common man and used him for an uncommon purpose. That they had typical failings as we have, but God used them in an amazing way. And so we were encouraged by the study of the other disciples. Judas this morning may not be for us an encouraging study, but it may provide for us rather a warning. That is a warning about the potential of spiritual carelessness. Squandered opportunity, sinful lusts, and the hardness of heart. A warning about the horrible possibility of being able to appear pious and devoted while not truly being so. A warning about the horrible possibility of being able to have a good-looking Christian veneer, an external showing without an inward reality. A warning of the horrible possibility of being able to do and say the right things in Christian company to just blend right in and yet not really be in Christ. A warning about the horrible possibility of even being in the proximity of Jesus as Judas was and we his church are of even associating with him as we the church do and yet never really giving your heart to Him. Jesus wants our hearts. And though you may be able to fool many people, it may be that you've been able to fool an entire church, or it may be that you could even fool your husband, or your wife, or your parents, or your friends. You never fooled God who looks upon the heart and who knows all things. And therefore, in the end, you commit spiritual suicide even as Judas committed physical suicide and deem yourself lost for eternity because you are willing to hide behind a thin Christian veneer that said, I'm okay. How tragic. Jesus said concerning the life of Judas in Mark chapter 14, verse 21, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. (laughs) How tragic. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. When we hear this and we ponder the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus, the one who was holy, innocent, undefiled, the one who was perfect in his love and the expression thereof, 
when we see that Judas betrayed him into the hands of the enemy for a mere 30 pieces of silver, Exodus chapter 21 verse 32 tells us that that was the price of a slave. When Judas sold Jesus out for the price of a slave, we look at that and we ponder and we consider that he must have been the most vile of men. But if we look closer... The horrible reality that dawned upon my heart this week as I pondered upon the life of Judas is that really any one of us could be Judas. You see, his secret goal is that which is shared by many of us. His secret goals were personal prosperity. We know from the Gospels that he pilfered the money bag, having been put in charge of it. His personal goal was gain for himself. That didn't sound too foreign. His personal goal was selfish ambition. There was a place he wanted to get to, a person he wanted to be, and certain things he wanted to have. And those goals were primary in his life and usurped Jesus as having authority and a place of affection in his heart. And yet all the while it was hidden behind a veneer that was quite effective. None of the other disciples ever suspected Judas of anything foul. Even until the very end, and we'll read about it in a few minutes, even until the very end they didn't suspect such a thing of Judas. A.B. Bruce, writing over a hundred years ago in a book entitled The Training of the Twelve, says it this way about Judas and his veneer. He says, the false disciple was a sentimental, plausible, self-deceived pietist who knew and approved the good, though not conscientiously practicing it. One who in aesthetic feeling, in fancy, and in intellect had affinities for the noble and the holy, while in will and in conduct he was the slave of base, selfish passions. One who in the last resource would always put self uppermost, yet he could zealously devote himself to well-doing when personal interests were not compromised. In short, what the Apostle James calls a double-minded man. A double-minded man. Judas was living a dual life. He was a traitor and a thief and a liar from the beginning. But he walked with Jesus every day. He fellowshiped with Peter and James and John and Matthew and Simon the Zealot and all these guys. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I've been sick. Excuse me. I'm sorry. That's horrible. And all these guys, day in and day out for three years. And none of the other men ever had a clue. What is amazing is that though Jesus knew from the very beginning, he loved him still. And the last words Jesus would ever say to Judas were, friend, do what you have to do. But friend, Judas the traitor and the kindness of Christ and the reality that dawned upon my life is that any one of us, even in light of the kindness of Jesus, could be a Judas. We all struggle with these things that Judas struggled with, but there must come in our lives a defining moment of repentance. A moment where we repent of the sin of self, where we get over ourselves and into God. 
Nothing better lends itself to the deceitfulness of sin than the boastful pride of life and selfish ambition. The boastful pride of life and selfish ambition. You see, selfish ambition sears the conscience. It sears it. It hardens the heart. It puts us in a place where we begin to think, well, I I understand what you're saying there, but you understand I also got to do these things. And our goals seem right and noble and true, but they usurp the reality of the Word of God and the authority of the Spirit of God. And now we become double-minded. And James says that the double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. There's no stability in his life. He's not single-minded, wholehearted, singly devoted to God. And there comes in life then an instability. Jesus said something in Luke chapter 16 that we ought to look at. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or riches. Verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You see, the Pharisees, like you and I, were so good at justifying their position. Here is why I deserve more. Here is why I should have my rights asserted. Here is why I should get what I want. Here is why it makes sense that I'm going after this at the expense of God and my Christian walk and my family and other things. Here's why this makes sense. And in the horrible wisdom of men, you may seem justified. And men may seem to you, yeah, you're right. You know what? You got to get yours. I got to get mine. That seems right. But God knows your hearts and what is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And so Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. It goes for riches or for any other master. No servant can have a divided heart. And so as Christians, and as we've been studying in our home groups, we seek to be disciples. Not nominal followers, but disciples of Christ. Those who would be able to call ourselves servants of the Most High God. And that means that we have to have an undivided heart. Why? Because Jesus stated it is an impossibility to live with a divided heart. You will either cling to the one or let go of the other. You will hate one master or love for the other. There won't be a balance. There will be instability in your life. And so if there seems to be this overwhelming instability in your life, examine yourself this morning in light of the Word of God. Is my heart divided? Or is it singly devoted unto the Lord? There's a horrible misconception in the world that came from some horrible preachers at some time or some misreading of the Bible that God is a taker and that He wants to take from you everything that is fun and everything that you enjoy and He wants to replace it with miserable things, bad food and hard times and floor scrubbing. 
And if you volunteer to serve the Lord, He's going to send you to the hottest, dustiest, darkest depths of Africa. And there you will suffer and labor in obscurity. That's possible. But it's not the rule. I wanted to serve God and He sent me to Carpinteria. My own hometown. And He allowed me to serve the Lord in a church that's on the beach. Listen, God is not a taker. God is a giver. And anytime he wants to take something out of your life, it's because it's harmful to you. It's damaging to you. And it's a hindrance to your participation in the kingdom of God. So if he wants to remove something from your life, it is for your good. Our earthly fathers disciplined us as seemed good to them. But our heavenly father disciplines us according to what is best for us. He having wisdom for our lives. God will never take something from you that he's not willing and ready and planning to replace with something infinitely more wonderful. Now, if you're carnal-minded, you may, you know, think, well, I I don't know, I, I really want this and not what God has. Well, then your heart is divided. And I guess this morning becomes a come back to Jesus talk. Allow your heart to be united and singly for him. You cannot serve two gods. The God of the universe said that it is impossible. Judas had every opportunity to turn from his sin. He had as much opportunity as was ever afforded anybody in all of history. He had numerous direct appeals from Jesus to turn his ways. Jesus said early on in John chapter 6, one of you, he said to his disciples, is the devil. Over and over again, he would try to get Judas to turn from his ways and repent and come into a right relationship, to leave his hypocrisy. All the while, the Lord knew he kept reaching out to him, loving him, giving him a chance to repent. God's loving kindness draws us to repentance. Judas heard every lesson that Jesus ever taught in the ministry. The Sermon on the Mount, all of the parables, all of the stories, all of the rebukes given to others, the moments where he would raise people from the dead, where he would heal the sick, when he would restore the woman caught in adultery, where Jesus walked on water. Judas witnessed all of these things and heard all of these teachings firsthand. But he listened and was yet unmoved. Unbelievable. He was so satisfied with the external veneer, the show that he could put forward. He was so satisfied with pleasing and fooling men that he never saw a need to respond to the work or the word of God. His personal ambitions, his desire for wealth, power, and prestige blinded him to the reality of eternity and the reality of God whom sees all things. Now, Unfortunately, we see this in the church in America all the time. Billy Graham said this, the biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. What did he mean by that? The biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. He didn't mean that you're sinning right now by being in church listening to me. He meant that the sin is that we merely listen and do not respond. Billy Graham, the biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. Think about that. We put ourselves in the place of Judas. 
when we hear the Word of God week in and week out, we may even read it during the week as we ought, when we receive the precepts and the truths of God and we refuse to respond, we put ourselves in the place of Judas. Now here's why that is so dangerous. Every time you come into the house of God or you open up the Word of God and something is revealed to you that's incorrect in your life, that you ought to deal with. Every time you hear that or read that or that comes to your attention and you reject it, you don't respond to it, there develops in your heart a callousness, a scab, so to speak, a hardness. Because you heard the truth and you did not receive the truth and there begins now to develop in you a blindness to the truth. And you may hear that again, and again, you can justify in your own mind, and you can justify before men why you ought not to respond. There's always a million reasons to continue in your sin, a million reasons to continue in your own selfish ambitions. We can all think of them, and we can always find someone to say, yes, you're right. We see people do this at church all the time. They'll come in for counsel, and maybe they talk to me, and I'll counsel them a certain way and say, you know what, you're wrong. And that's sin, and you ought to get right. And so what do they do? They go to Pastor G, thinking maybe Pastor G is going to be soft on him. He'll give him a different answer, and they begin to counsel with him. No, you're wrong. That's sin. You need to repent. You need to get right. Hmm. I'm going to go talk to Hetty. Hetty's a girl. She's nice for sure. She'll be easy on me. Hetty, what do you think? And they just go down the line until they find someone who will say, Oh, you're okay. Oh, don't worry about it. You'll always be able to find someone who will lie to your face. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so there's a real danger in not responding to the word of God because there develops a hardness, a callousness, and eventually a blindness where you no longer can respond to the word of God. And now you have fallen under the deceitfulness of sin and you don't even know where you are anymore. I want you to see a contrast between Judas and a woman named Mary. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Here we have a contrast between Judas... And this gal named Mary, of which you are familiar with. John 12, starting verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made supper there for him, and Martha was serving, as is typical. But Lazarus was one of those reclining. He was just raised from the dead, possibly still a little tired, at the table with him. Verse 3, though, Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume. Women, how many of you in your vanity or whatever you call it at home, your area, have for yourselves there a pound of very costly perfume? None. A pound is a lot of perfume. Don't we buy it by the ounces? When I go to buy perfume for my wife, you know, on Valentine's or Christmas or whatever, I, I'll take an ounce. 
she had a pound of very costly perfume. Now we happen to know that this pound of perfume was equivalent to 11 months wages, 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's wages, 300 denarii, 11 months wages. What is 11 months to you? For some of you, that's a whole lot of money. For others, no big deal. But for her, it was a big deal. She took 11 months' wages, and it says here in verse 3, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. You see, Jesus was having a meal, and it doesn't say here that anybody had washed his feet. It was customary at that time when you went into a house to have a meal that the lowest slave in the household would come and they would wash your feet. Because, of course, they had no paved, or not many paved roads back then. There was a lot of dirt and dust, and they wore open sandals. And you reclined at the tables back then. And so your head would often be by somebody's feet. And so please, wash the feet before we eat. But it doesn't say here that his feet were washed. And Mary, taking note of that, possibly she came with the most valuable thing that she had. The most elaborate, expensive thing that she could do. She did before Jesus. All that she had, scholars say it was probably the dowry for her wedding day, she poured it out on the filthy feet of Jesus. And she began to wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair in a show of adoration, in a show of affection, in a show of devotion, in a wonderful display of worship. She poured it all out of the feet of Jesus. And Jesus was worthy of every ounce of it. And she just worshiped. She just blessed him that way. Let me tell you how profound this was in the mind of Christ. It says in another gospel that whatever, wherever the gospel goes from this day forward, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus was so moved by the display of worship that he said wherever the gospel goes for the rest of history, this moment in history will be spoken of. From that, we begin to get a glimpse of God's view of worship. That he loves his children to come before him and pour everything out at his feet. Just bless them. We don't have to pour out perfume. We can offer up the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says. The sacrifice of praise, 11 months wages worth of praise, pour it out at the feet of Jesus. And he is so blessed by that. We have that wonderful display of Mary. But then in verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? John, in hindsight, writing on an inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us in verse 6, Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Did you catch that? Once again, in the face of this extreme display of devotion, this display of love for Mary, bam, he throws up the veneer. He throws up his Christian little hiding thing. His little Christian face. And having been disturbed in his heart at someone pouring out so much love to Jesus and Jesus responding in such a powerful way, he says, mm, uh, well, we should have given the money to the poor. In other words, we could have done real ministry with all that money. That's what he said there. 
You see, the hypocrite will always try to hide behind good works. I come, I give my 10%, I give my tithe, I put stuff in the bag. I came, I moved some chairs, you know what I mean? I greeted some people, I'm going to invite someone. They will always hide behind good works. Whenever true devotion, true worship, true praise is put forward, they will immediately try to hold up their works and say, but no, look at me. You should have been doing this for the poor. You should have been doing thus and so. A thin veneer. Jesus said, therefore, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus was more moved by the display of affection toward him than the lying desire of a good work from Judas. Now, Judas here was mocking worship. Judas said, what a silly waste. We could have done something more valuable. There is a spiritual principle to be gleaned at this point. Those who mock worship, those who don't give priority to expressing love to the Lord in its many various forms, showing devotion to the Lord, offering up what the New Testament calls the sacrifice of praise. Those who ignore that, don't give priority to it, scoff at it, shun it, want nothing to do with it. They have spiritually dry times coming their way. It's illustrated over and over again in the Bible. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have King David. And read it later on in 2 Samuel chapter 6, King David, in just a show of awe to the Lord, took off his kingly garments, stripped down to his underwear, and began to dance before the ark of God and before all the nation of Israel. He stripped off his kingly garments, his reputation, all of who he was, laid it aside, and just danced in his skivvies before the Lord. Now he had a wife, Michal, who was Saul's daughter. And Michal said, when uh, David came back home, My, how the king uncovered himself today in the eyes of the maids. He uncovered himself as one of the foolish ones does. In other words, she said, David, you made a fool of yourself today. What is this? Oh, I bless you. What is that stuff? Oh, praise the Lord. What is this bouncing around in your underwear singing praises unto the Lord? David, you're a fool. After Michal said that, the Bible says that she was barren until the day of her death. There is in the life of Judas and in the life of Michal a spiritual lesson for you and I. Those who mock worship, those who don't give priority to, those who don't see the importance of offering up the sacrifice of praise have spiritual barrenness headed their way. It's illustrated again in the millennial kingdom. Zechariah chapter 14, we've got time. This is an exciting passage. Turn to Zechariah 14, keep your finger where you're at. Zechariah is just right before the gospel of Matthew. Backwards it goes Matthew, Malachi, and then Zechariah. This is good stuff. Zechariah chapter 14. We'll see it illustrated just again in a moment. Going backwards, Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. Zechariah 14, verse 1. What we're about to read is, was prophetic at the time of writing and is currently being fulfilled. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. 
And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Now, if you know anything about the current political situation in the world, the nations are being gathered against Jerusalem. Why the heck do people give a care about Jerusalem? It is the tiniest little place on all the earth. Have you been there? Get your money in, go with us this summer. You will pull up to Jerusalem and you'll say, this is what all the hullabaloo is about? This is what the United Nations is continually squabbling about? This little tiny piece of real estate? This is it? Everybody, what is the big deal? The only big deal is that God has established Jerusalem as a picture of his faithfulness. And then he said, I will place my name in Jerusalem for all generations. And you see, for many years, Israel ceased to be a nation for a couple thousand years. And people would read Bible prophecy and they'd be absolutely confounded and confused. And then in 1948, May 14th, at midnight, Israel became a nation again. Never in the history of the world has the people ceased to be a nation for 2,000 years and became a nation again. It is unheard of. It is unfathomable. It is unprecedented. It is ludicrous except the hand of God preserving his people whom he said he would preserve. And most importantly, it's not just about the Jews. It is about God's faithfulness that he made certain promises to them and God is obligated by his nature, by his character to fulfill his promises. And we can look at Jerusalem today and the nation of Israel and the going-ons in the world, compare them to Bible prophecy and see that our God is faithful, that he keeps his promises. It's important for you because you as a Christian are in a covenant relationship with God, just as he had a covenant with Israel. If he has broken his covenant with Israel, what makes him think he will keep his covenant with you? He has not broken his covenant with Israel. He will fulfill every aspect of it, ultimately in the millennial kingdom. Therefore, you know that he will also keep his kingdom, his covenant, excuse me, with you. God is faithful. And so the current political situation, and then we see in verse 3. Compare this later on to Revelation chapter 19. This is talking about the battle of Armageddon that happens after the tribulation period. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. This summer we will go to the Mount of Olives. We will stand there. We will open up this passage and we'll read it. And we will remember and we will look forward to the day when during the battle of Armageddon when it seems that Israel will fall and wickedness in the Antichrist and the forces of Satan will prevail. Jesus himself will come on a white horse in the sky, Revelation 19 says, and all the holy ones, you and I with him, and he will go over the valley of Armageddon where we will go this summer and with the word of his mouth he will defeat the forces of the Antichrist. He will head south to the Mount of Olives and there it says he will touch his feet down on that spot. And the Mount of Olives, it reads, will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Something interesting happened in 1927, July 11th. July 11th, 1927, people that study such things found a fault line, a big one, running under the Mount of Olives from east to west. God just showing you and I, hey man, open your eyes. The Bible is real. My coming is soon. 
And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. And then, it, by the way, read Revelation chapter 19. Those holy ones are you and I. Maybe you can't afford to go to Israel this summer. You will eventually get there. So it follows that as he touches down on the Mount of Olives, he'll walk down through this new valley and across the Kidron Valley and up the eastern Temple Mount through the eastern gate. And there he'll establish the millennial kingdom. And it says in verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. So now we are in the midst of the millennial kingdom. And you'll remember though we got sidetracked that I am illustrating to you from the word of God that those who choose not to give priority to offering up the sacrifice of praise have spiritually dry times coming their way. We saw it illustrated in the life of Michal. We're seeing it illustrated in the life of Judas. And now we'll see it illustrated in the millennial kingdom. Verse 16. Zechariah 14, 16 then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king. Okay? So all the nations of the world are invited during the millennial kingdom to come up to Mount Zion and to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths will be reenacted. That ancient... Um, a Jewish celebration that the Lord established there in Leviticus 23, which celebrates the faithfulness of God and Him delivering His people into the promised land, even as He delivers them into the millennial kingdom. We will once celebrate that feast once again. Now verse 17. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Those who neglect worship. Those who hear the invitation of the Lord to come and offer up the sacrifice of praise and neglect it. They will be, even as the nations will be in this day, dry. Spiritually dry as the nations. Spiritually barren as Michal. And they will end up spiritually dead as Judas took his own life, having refused to adore the Lord having been so confused and confounded and distracted by the riches of the world and his own ambitions that he never entered into intimacy with God, never turned over his heart, and it ended for him in spiritual death. All the while, though Judas refused to love the Lord, the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him to the very end. We see in John chapter 13, if you'll go back there, John 13 now. By the way, after that display of worship by Mary, we're told in Matthew 26, verses 14 and 16, 
that Judas immediately left that scene and went and negotiated with the religious leaders how he might betray Jesus. It says it exactly like this. Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And that was a pivotal moment in the life of Judas. When he saw worship happening, he could have dove in. That was an opportunity to repent, even as it is today for some of us, an opportunity to get right and say, okay, Lord, my heart is filled with so many other things. I surrender unto you. Instead, he ignored all that happened, all that the Lord said, and he went out to betray him. Amazing. Now we come to the next event in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about, and he began to wash the feet of the disciples. It's amazing what people open themselves up to when they continually reject the word of God and the working of God. Judas opened himself up to the influence of Satan. And Satan will take every advantage. Jesus, even knowing the state of Judas, girded himself, knelt down, and it says there in verse 5, he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel. Can you imagine being God? God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, knowing the heart of Judas, knowing what he intended to do, and yet displaying such love that you kneel down and you wash his feet. You don't know a love like that. I don't know a love like that. Humanity cannot manufacture that love. Only God has that love. He knelt down at the betraying feet of of Judas and he scrubbed them in love till the last moment. The amazing kindness of Christ. Verse 6, And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you don't realize now, but you shall understand later. Peter said, Never shall you wash my feet. In other words, Peter, in contrast to Judas, understood his unworthiness. God, I am not worthy to have you wash my feet. Peter would say many times or another time, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful and wicked man. I'm not worthy of this. Jesus, if you would bend down and wash my feet, I can't deal with this. You're too kind to me, God. You're too good to me. And it developed in Peter a heart of repentance as it is designed to do in each one of us. But Judas would not have it. And Judas sat there in his arrogance and allowed God to wash his feet and did not repent. That was the moment for Judas to say, God, I've been wrong. Jesus, I've lied to you. I've lied to my brethren. I've lied to the church. I've lied to Israel. I'm a betrayer. I've took money. My hands are guilty. Forgive me. Man, he would have been forgiven. That was the moment. How hard had, how hard had his heart become to ignore the kindness of the Lord at this moment. 
Jesus said to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him in verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, he said to Peter. And then he said, but not all of you. Speaking of Judas, here was another opportunity for Judas to respond to the word of God. Once again, he's been given a chance. Not all of you are clean. I imagine he waited. Judas, do you want to come clean? Now's a chance. We're here to do business. Just as we come to church to do business. Remember, we don't want to play church. We want to come here and be real with God and real with one another. We want to do business. Is today your day to do business? Is the Lord saying, not all of you are clean? This was Judas's opportunity. He didn't say anything. Verse 12, And so, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them, Judas. There's another opportunity. Judas, look what I've done. This is what you've got to do. Now you've got to die to self. Now's the moment, Judas. If you do these things, you are blessed if you do them. Nothing. So he says in verse 18, I don't speak to all of you. I know the ones I've chosen. But it is that scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Speaking of Judas. Having given him those opportunities to respond and to repent. So Jesus says, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever sends me and and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. Look at this. And testified. He's saying these things. And again, the God of the universe is troubled in his heart. And he testifies. He says here, truly, truly, listen to me, disciples. Listen to me. I say to you that one of you will betray me. He says it plainly again. The heart of God is disturbed. It says there that he was troubled in his spirit. He was going to go to the cross regardless. He wasn't troubled in his spirit just about that. He was troubled in his spirit that the one whom God had formed in his mother's womb would not receive the love of the Father. You see, Jesus looked upon Judas as a child. He said, I formed you in your mother's womb. I am the great I am. All things were created by him and for him. And apart from him, nothing exists. And Judas, I made you in your mother's womb. And I had a plan to redeem you and to call me your own. Judas, for the last time, repent. And the heart of God wept because he wouldn't make another Judas. If Judas wouldn't worship him, then no Judas ever would. There was only one. He was absolutely unique as you are unique. If you won't worship God, he won't make another of you to do so. It is simply lost for all of eternity. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of whom he was speaking. 
Judas had them absolutely fooled. They had no idea he was speaking about them. There was reclining on Jesus' breast, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, gestured to him and said to him, Tell us whom it is of who Jesus is speaking. And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus, therefore, answered and said, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. God is so kind. God loves you so much. He is so good. The life of Judas is for us a reminder, a warning of the deceitfulness of sin and its destructive force and the amazing love of God.